Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, the show on YouTube channel and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another day for an interview and I'm dead delighted because I have found someone on this world who hates public transport as much as I do and especially the, the kind of fear that you always, always miss your bus and in fact, actually miss your bus and miss your train and sort of see them driving into the far distance there. That was my story for my youth. And it has been the story of my nightmares. And here I've got with me tonight, author Tiffany Johnson, whose book struck me from the word go as such a beautiful thing because there was finally someone else who had the same embarrassing moments and had the same the same the same things that you don't want to admit because they're so <laughs> Tiffany I'm so proud and so not proud I'm so pleased that I have you here I'm so honored to have you here thank you very much for coming on to my show Oh, it's so exciting to be here, Stefan. Thank you so much for having me. And it is the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Being <laughs> watching that bus go off into the distance. And you're like, oh my God, I've missed it again. I'm very good at being late. I was, in fact, an hour late to my own wedding. So I'm not very good <laughs> at keeping to timetables. And here we are. That is that is what today. a bride. No, that is what a bride should be. Come on. So that is. <laughs> I don't think my wife was on time. So please, <laughs> that's the reason that typically men go to a bar first and think, yeah, we should start now. I will take another one. Um, <laughs> no I'm kidding. Just kidding. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh dear. Well, Tiffany, uh, we two met on 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 a forum where uh, we learned a bit more about podcasting and and looked around to to find other people to connect with, and you and your story were standing out and. Of course, it was standing out, and it's hard for me. Uh, we started off a bit with a with a laugh, but your story was actually anything but a laugh when mm. when it when it really when when the metal met the meat. In reality, you had a beautiful beautiful start. You tell us a bit. Where did it all start? Where I did. I had the a Australian. In the Australian, in the beautiful Australian bush with wombats ambling through the countryside that I sat up in my tree house on our farm. So I grew up in rural Australia in New South Wales and I had an idyllic childhood. I'm so incredibly blessed and lucky. I, my parents were together. I lived with my little brother and my mum and my dad and, you know, we had a cat and some dogs and, you know, I went to a good school and my life at the age of 17, I had all these opportunities out in front of me and starting into those adult steps into, into what we expect our life to be can sometimes be really challenging and confronting. And it wasn't that I didn't, I talk about in the book how I had this sense of that I didn't belong, but it wasn't so much that I didn't belong in the space I was in or in the town that I was in. It was more that I didn't belong within myself. I hadn't fully found who I was. And I think we're all looking for that at that age. You know, we have in our mindset what we think our life is going to be like. And quite often it turns out very, very different. And so when you are trying to make those decisions, 
it's, it's a lot of pressure, I think, on kids these days. Or it was for me back then too. I mean, it's a long time ago. It's over 20 years ago. Shh, don't tell anyone. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I had all these different opportunities. I could have gone to art school in Sydney or I could have gone to university interstate or I could have gone to um, another college that was nearby or another university. I've got all these options. And I actually chose to go interstate because I thought that if I moved away from home that I'd have an opportunity to find who I was and you know it was a career that potentially would be steadfast secure it wasn't something that I loved though I actually didn't really like it at all but I thought that it's what I had to do to get to the life that I had expected to to have that those expectations on me were they your own expectations or were they the expectations of your family I think it's a bit of both. I think I think it's definitely a bit of both that I wanted to have the princess. Um, you know, I wanted to have the love of my life and the family and the children. and the, But I also wanted to have the career and be creative and, and do all those things that <laughs> I was passionate about. But uh, it didn't quite go to plan. <laughs> <laughs> and... and Which plans do play out the way we want them to do? I could swear up there in the Olympus, there are some gods sitting down there and they're just looking around and say, oh, look, that's a good plan down there. <laughs> Let's do something yeah. about that. I'm sure I'm, that is I'm true. sure they are too. But I also think that take when you make those mistakes and when you do take those steps, that's the moulding part of right. who you actually end up being. And that is the joy and the gift and the fun in finding your way mm. and it definitely was for me mm. I mean there were very some very traumatic and difficult experiences in that but it definitely has molded me into who I am now and indeed and that is why you're sitting here you are a lioness and we will come to that uh, <laughs> or why you are that but you certainly were not you were not that you were not even a little cup you were more more uh, probably a bit of a shy mouse um, a shy little wombat, shall I say? Yeah, <laughs> maybe, yeah. And I thought that the missing puzzle pieces of me, and I was a very much a people pleaser. I think that was one of my biggest hurdles to move through mm. was always wanting to please, wanting to please my family, wanting to please those expectations put on me, on, on myself, mm. being a good girl. I was the quintessential girl next door. You know, I've got blonde hair, blue eyes. Mm. <laughs> like I'm the little girl next door. You know, I babysat the kids in the, in the town and all of those things. So I was a good girl. And I was at university and I was working because, you know, I'm very independent, wanted to make my own way, pay for myself. And I, um, I met a man who, you know, I had feelings inside of me that I, I didn't even know those sorts of ex feelings existed. Do you remember like that very first time that you saw someone and the, there's chemistry and your breath is taken away and it's that first time you really feel that intense adult attraction to someone else and I had that and I just, like my mind was blown open. What the hell is going on here? And that was a whirlwind romance. We moved in within a week together and but what was this love and lust and intense passion turned into a toxic heated mess and I was in that relationship for two years. We had a death in our family and I was finally allowed to go home. And uh, when I went home and I stood in my bedroom and I looked in the mirror at myself, my childhood bedroom, and I didn't recognise that girl 
I went away to try and find one tiny missing puzzle piece. But what had happened is that every single piece of me had fallen off in that process. I was anorexic. I'd got down to 40 kilos. I had low self-esteem. I had high anxiety. I was working four jobs to make ends meet. I was, I was in a bad way. And I knew that I needed to get out of that relationship. I just didn't know how. And being so young and being away from your family and from your friends and your origins and having that support network around you is really difficult to um, have that support behind you to make those decisions. And I went back to our pretend happy home and I found him in bed with two other women which was a blessing because it meant that I could finally leave. It gave me permission to leave. And so I did. And I went as far away as I could and I went to a tropical island, but I was still filled with this shame and this hurt and lack of self-esteem. And I wasn't, I wasn't a girl that in high school I had self-esteem. I was a relatively confident sort of girl. I was up on stage singing and I was in all the musicals and I was, and there were parts of me that I didn't feel confident with, but we all do as teenagers. That's part of finding our way. But I had none of it anymore. It was completely, totally gone. So trying to find that again within myself was really difficult and I was working on this island and it was good because Just I could live come, there. Oh, sorry. Come back. Yes. No, no, I'll come back a bit because at what strikes me is, yes, you lost one support network, but typically when you come to university, you start making friends, you start, uh, you know, meeting other people. But, of course, because you went straight into this whirlwind romance who quickly became toxic. Toxic typically also means manipulative and basically preventing you meet other people, preventing you to, to have your own life. Uh, was that a bit what was going on in that in that relationship? Was, there was there were definitely elements yeah. of control, masses yeah. of control yeah. in that. Yes, and there was no a, there yeah. was no sense of of support mm. in where I was living at all yeah. at that point in time. And, and then very much so. There you are. You're a young girl, um, no more support network. Uh, essentially, completely floating in in nothingness that is being controlled by a not very nice person mm. damn so you came home your mum must have been shocked to see you your mum must have or your dad I was I well I was very good at hiding the truth I've hid the truth from them for a very 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 long time and I wore lots of baggy clothes and they they knew that there was something wrong they mm. didn't know what was wrong and I didn't know how to fix it and I was so good at hiding that I succeeded I had never been a deceit deception I'd never been a girl that was filled with deception before mm. but um there had come a time where I needed to be so um I mastered the art of of, of being able to mm. perform that and I was a very good performer I was a great actress <laughs> I proved it <laughs> Anyway, so um, yeah, so that was a, that was another you know stepping stone in my early adult years, um, which of course is um, you were too good for your own good. Um, it would mm. have been so nice if someone would have seen the hurt and would yeah. have would have allowed you just someone who who breaks open that mask just a little bit and yeah. see what is coming out. And I think I would have grabbed onto that had that opportunity presented itself. But I think that, um, yeah, I think there were lots of different uh, elements around that that prevented and, those opportunities. 
and probably not the least, the evil twins of shame and guilt, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, the embarrassment yeah. of you, you, you went out into the world to prove to your parents, hey, here, I am a strong woman, and you come home inside broken, and mm. it takes it takes a very mature person to admit that. And you had no way of building up this maturity. You were still sharing coping mechanisms of a teenager, ultimately, yeah, if you look at it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Brutal. Definitely. How did it continue? So then then how did you get to the island? How, how did that happen? I mean... It's... Oh, I, I applied for a job and I off I went and... Um... <laughs> Took a oh, plane, cool. not a bus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's very cool. Yeah, so I got to the island and and I worked there and it was amazing and, um, uh, you know, it was like living in paradise. But uh, I was coming home from work one night and um, I was stalked by two men and was nearly raped and I was terrified. Mm. I was absolutely terrified. I, I escaped and I remember standing, you know, getting back into my room and sort of standing behind that door, you know, <gasps> Mm. and I had a phone call from the ex-boyfriend and he was going overseas and I thought it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't and so I said do you want to book a ticket for two and Mm. went overseas with him you know what's really interesting about that part of the story is that I felt physically sick when I did that I felt Mm. physically and emotionally and spiritually completely drained and I, people call it your sixth sense. I call it your intuition. Mm-hmm. And I listen to my intuition all the time now. But that feeling in the pit of my stomach that's kind of like uh, a nervous energy or a mm. butterflies, but really bad butterflies. It's not like a, I'm happy a nervous excitement. It's a something very, very bad is about to happen feeling. And, yeah, I, I listen to that gut instinct mm. all the time now. Mm. I never, ever let that go. <laughs> me too. Me too. Yeah. For all, for all, <coughs> excuse me. Probably similar reasons as you, um, and we'll explore that. The, the when you end up in a scenario where you are out of control and where a lot of things happen that you don't like, it changes you forever, and there's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. But we are not, not yet there. So, dear viewers, uh, you have to hang around a little bit longer if you want to know what the crunch is. <laughs> yeah. So, you were on your island, and you decided, "No, let's let's go. That's that's silly here. I don't like it. It's unsafe." And uh, the devil, you know. Well, that's actually a nice yeah. way of putting it, as far as this situation is concerned. You went overseas. What was the plan, actually? What was the plan at that moment in time? You knew he wanted to go. He's from the, he's from, can we say where he's from? He's from the UK. The book is from the UK, yes. That's right. So British Isles. And, hey, that sounds actually quite nice, you know, maybe a lord of a a manor, a... Uh, a suave gentleman, because that was a bit how he, how he presented himself. That is how you met, wasn't it? Yeah, very yeah. charismatic. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, when I got there, things were very different to what I had envisaged. Yeah. And, you know, that same old wheel just started to turn again. And I thought, how the hell am I going to get out of this? Like, what do I do now? I'm on the other side of the world completely alone. And oh, what 
do I do? What am I doing here? What are you doing? The amount of times I must have said that to myself, what are you doing? It was just a mantra. I constantly said in my head, what are you doing? And um, I finally, I found this, we'd been, I'd been there for a little while and I was going through my bag think, saying these questions over and over again, what are you doing, what are you doing? And this letter, I found this letter and it was covered in these little love heart stickers and smelled of really cheap perfume and I was like, my God, what is in that letter? And it had an Aussie stamp and I opened the letter, like it's totally naughty, like this is a bad, bad thing to do. I would never open someone's mail. It's not. It's totally out of character for me but I was like, ah, what is in that letter? Yeah. And so I opened it and, you know, the letter was... It was from his married lover back in Australia, planning on getting rid of me. And I just was like this, I can't do this anymore. Like I seriously have to leave. And I finally left once and for all for good. And that was liberating and terrifying all at once. Mm. And it was heartbreaking as well because what I thought was going to happen Again, the expectation of this beautiful, wonderful romance and person in my life, it didn't work out that way. And I think a lot of us can relate to heartbreak and how crushing it can be. So I got another job. There's heartbreak and there's heartbreak. This uh, gentleman, and I use that term in the very loosest sense of it, um, he, uh, in your book, you described that you actually... Uh, that there was also some financial incentive. He had convinced Indeed. you to open a, a shared account. You put your money in there, lovely, doubly. Then you checked your account balance and there was a bit of tumbleweed rolling through. Exactly. <laughs> Correct. The bastard, the bastard had stripped you, basically. Um, and for what? Not for gambling, not for alcohol, to buy a ticket for the other girl to come out from your money. And Correct. I thought when I read that, I thought, okay, I, I, was, I was not necessarily a nice man uh, when I was younger, but I mean, that, that takes the cherry off the top. Come on, <laughs> honestly. So uh, that was intriguing me. I was, I was feeling my heart rate going up a bit uh, and my fists clenching a bit. Um, hmm. But yeah. how did you respond to that? Tell us that story because I loved it. Oh, did you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I found I myself it. a little. I found myself a little pub, <laughs> and stayed there that night. And yeah. the mattress folded in on me, and you know, I nearly hit my head on the roof. And I'm only five foot two, so it was a, <laughs> it was a tiny little room. <laughs> and you know, I, the next day I had this shower in peace and quiet. I could have the hot water as hot as I wanted it. And it was just the sun shone in and it smelled like fresh soap. And I was like, oh, like it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I didn't have that terrible feeling anymore. And so then I went um, and to this, I'd I'd applied for a job and I got a job and I hadn't done any research because I just was desperate to get some money because like, hello, I'm 21, (laughs) desolate and homeless. And when I got there, oh. Hey, I, this, was, this was a four-star placement that you had Four-star, they said. Yes, uh-huh. I did. Yes, four-star, <laughs> we say. Oh, my God. And I walked in and my feet stuck to the carpet and the lady at reception had to turn her hearing aid up because she couldn't hear anything and the teacups were chipped and the food was all just like stuck onto the bain-maries and the kitchen was squalor. It, I actually, it's like, you know, when you see that TV show with um, 
Gordon, Gordon Ramsay and Hell's Kitchens or whatever it is. Uh-huh. And you go into these kitchens and you're like, how are these places open? It was like that. <laughs> and every time I see that program, I'm like, I've been into one of those kitchens and it's uh, terrifying. Oh. And and I just rem- I remember standing in that room that they said, oh, this will be your accommodation and it was this pink and grey. So I thought, how do you even get a pink and grey sort of coloured wall? And then I realised it was mould and then there was all the rat droppings on the windowsill and I was like, and then I heard a noise and I like screamed, <laughs> You know, I put the key back in the door and I just, I was, I was out of there. I was like, I am not staying here. <laughs> and so I was like, what do I do now? Like I literally had, I was literally homeless, yeah. had no money, no, knew absolutely no one, nowhere to yeah. go. Like what On the other I side of the world, you have to on say. On the other side That's of the right. world. And in, in, you know, that was in Scotland, wasn't it, that yeah. hotel there? So you tried to yeah. get away from the guy. Um, and basically <laughs> travel the length of the UK to get away from, from him. It was a good, good start, good start. And, and in all fairness, four star, hey, you would think, come on. Um, but there you ended up with your luck and the lack of preparation. Uh, you ended yeah. up so bad. Yeah, and then, it wasn't great. But then came a moment for you because uh, I found then the next step heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time because there was you had really to 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 eat humble pie and you called your parents isn't it yeah and I just was sobbing yeah. like really sobbing sobbing so loud that people were looking at me funny and I was in the phone booth too because you know this is back in 1999 and you know, people were walking past and I did that call collect number to home and, and you know, it used to make that noise and my mother and she's, you know, they still didn't know about the true nature of how toxic that relationship was. And I said to mum, you know, things haven't worked out. And there's another thing, my money's all gone. And her response was, well, darling, you can't have gone to the other side of the world and had a terrible time. Go out there, meet people your own age, live. Life's a banquet. Go out there and live. And apparently she got off the phone, which I haven't put this in the book because this is her part of the story, but she got off the phone and she's like to my dad, we've got to find some money. You know, they didn't have the money. We've got to find some money for Tiff. She's in dire trouble. And so they worked it out and they helped me. But that was actually a real, it was a stretch for them at the time to do what they did. And I I haven't talked about that because that's their story, not my story. And um, I just am so grateful for what mm. they did because it really, it changed my life. It changed my life, period, <laughs> forever and mm. ever and ever and ever. Mm. So I was so lucky to have that as a fallback. And so I booked a Kentucky tour and I finally got to London through many obstacles and stops and starts and meeting different characters along the way. And when I got there and I was dead tired and the buses again, the stress with the buses was intense. You know, I nearly got mugged or God knows what happened. Some girl out of nowhere rescued me and put, threw me into a Mercedes Benz and I thought, how, okay, there's angels taking care of me now because I don't know where I am. I'm in a dark alley in London and there was just step after step after step, as I talk about in the book, it just wasn't going my way. Nothing went my way. When I got to my room that night, it wasn't going my way. I went to get on the bus. It wasn't going my way. I held the bus up for two hours before I could get on. And you can imagine a whole bunch of, you know, early 20-year-old blokes sitting at the back of the bus. I just wanted to find a rock, a very big rock, a hole, crawl into it and never, ever come out. The humiliation, the embarrassment, and already on top of 
the anxiety, the fear, the worry, the lack of self-confidence and self-esteem, the, you know, worrying about pleasing everyone. I wasn't pleasing anyone on that bus. They were furious with me. And so I know I really cared about what people think. Well, I did then at that point in time. I don't now so much. So I, I know that that's their stuff and my stuff's my stuff. And so I've grown significantly in that, but at age 21, having been through everything I'd already been through, to then have to face that busload of people that were cheering and screaming and the humiliation, I'm sure that my face was as red as a beetroot. And I thought again, what the hell am I doing here? And slowly but surely my onion layers started to unravel and I started to discover more of who I was and I made many mistakes as we travelled and a lot of those mistakes aren't even in the book. I made even more mistakes. <laughs> and so you know, I got lost in different places and, Excellent. you know, I just had to condense it a bit. So, you know, and missed buses and, oh, God, anyway. And so it wasn't really until, though, that I'd got to Tuscany and, you know, I was like, it was hot on the bus and the scenery was amazing. I'd never seen anything like that before. And travel really opens your eyes, doesn't it? I mean, it... When you see how a different culture lives, it's more in your face. It's You can actually appreciate what you've read about or what you've learned about in a movie or wherever, in school books. You become a part of it. And I was feeling a part of that scenery. I was wanting to share it with someone and I was feeling homesick because I wanted to share it with my parents and they weren't there. And I was so confused about everything within myself. I was like a big bubble of confusion. And I looked up over the seats of the bus and another girl looked up over the seats of the bus. And I'm sharing this story because it's so important to come into the recovery side of things. And we connected, but it wasn't a connection of passion or lust. It was a connection of souls. And it was the most beautiful, I'm almost going to cry talking about her because she is, to this day, still my best friend. And we had this amazing experience where we opened our hearts to each other and I finally found someone else that didn't know me from a bar of soap but genuinely accepted me, all of me. She'd seen me, you know, performing terrible behaviour, drinking too much, carrying on like a complete pork chop, and yet she still sat there and shared this moment and this beauty with me and we were honest and open and vulnerable. And I learned in that moment the importance of vulnerability and honesty and being authentic and true. And that was my road to really finding who I was. And I was always all of those things. I just had hid them from myself. And what I'd actually been looking for that whole time was that piece of me that accepted me, all the broken pieces of me, all the full pieces of me, all the gifts, all the talents, all the mistakes, all the areas that needed improvement. But it was acceptance of myself and believing in myself. And so when I got to Switzerland, travelled around a bit more, got to Switzerland, and I went up to Jungfrau, which is the world's highest train station. And it was the first time I'd seen snow. I mean, I know that people think this is ridiculous. I laugh every time I talk about it because I'm like, you have no idea the excitement. I grew up in the country where it's hot, there's droughts, there's floods, there's no snow. No snow, there's rain. Sometimes lots of rain, but there is absolutely no snow. We were a long way from the snowfield, so we were not going to the snow. And it was just this magical moment where I saw these mountains and they're so big. There's nothing like what we've got here in Australia. 
And I mean, you do more so in New Zealand, but not like that here. Like they've all been squished down. We're a very old country. <laughs> so the mountains are not very big. And, you know, we do get snow though. But I, I, I just, I hold on to that moment still because I thought if these mountains can stand the test of time, if they can withstand blizzards and dinosaurs and humans coming up here and making train stations, surely to God, I can do this thing called life. Like I can do this. I can do it. I'm holding old snow. Like how old is this snow? I don't know. Older than me. Older than my parents. Older than my grandparents. Like this is old and amazing. And I have the gift of life to hold it. What a gift. And it was so liberating and I didn't need to drink that night because I didn't need to hide who I was anymore. Like what a blessing. It was a blessing. That day was life-changing. And then the next day we were going canyoning and I called my dad and I was so excited and I was like, Dad, this is this is amazing and I want to bring you here. I still actually haven't taken him to Switzerland today. I really want to do that one day before um before before he goes Mm. (laughs) I shouldn't say that he's getting on now Mm. but um you know I um I haven't that opportunity hasn't arisen yet but I will make that happen once COVID's over so um I yeah I called my dad and and just had this amazing you know conversation with him dad this is me I'm really I love who I am beautiful He's like, Possum, that's what you went there for. That's amazing. I can't wait to be there with you one day and it'll be so amazing and fantastic. And then the next phone call I made home was a very, very different phone call. And again, there you were. It is, it's, it's so bizarre. It's actually if you wanted to write a film um, and use the techniques of, of the free part uh development of the heroin journey etc you've got it all in there and it's bloody hell here goosebumps goosebumps just just thinking about the timing and about you having that that revelation of finding yourself there and then and this this must be such a beautiful moment after all what you had gone through, because there were now years of not so nice things. And yeah. you you made your first real friend. Uh, mm. It's I love it when you when you wrote in a book that just that you that you that you talked and cried and did all kind of things. And it was just just a soulmate that that stumbled yeah. across you and you across her. And yeah. amazing, amazing. Yeah. And then the next day, beautiful. next day, the next adventure was coming, and you were next still ad- looking forward to it. Oh, That's I know. Right. That's it was right. going, yeah, amazing. Yeah. It was just going to be so full of adrenaline because exactly. you know we'd been whitewater rafting and there'd yeah. been no rapids at all, and we were like, well, it doesn't matter. We've got canyoning <laughs> coming up. It'll be amazing yeah. and fine. And so yeah. then we, um, the few of us that decided that it was going canyoning was a activity that you could choose to do. So it wasn't a compulsory activity. It was an extracurricular. Activity. And for those of you who don't know what canyoning is, canyoning is making your way down through a canyon, through the water, through the creeks or a stream, and you abseil or climb or slide or jump um, down around boulders and you make your way down sort of to the bottom of the canyon. And you wear a helmet and a life vest and a full wetsuit 
And so where we were going is in the Saxon Buck Gorge and it's melted snow basically and it's a beautiful, amazing, beautiful spot in the world. And we were going with a company called Adventure World and so we were getting ready and getting all of our bits and pieces, getting our gear on and getting the briefing and there was a girl standing next to me and I didn't know her, I didn't know this girl, and she was putting a Band-Aid on her wedding ring um, and that was just a group of Kentucky travellers who were going canyoning. So it was another bus group who'd also chose to go on this extracurricular activity. So there was people from my bus tour and then people from another bus tour. So this girl that was standing next to you, I didn't know who she was, and she's putting this Band-Aid on her wedding ring and I'm standing there and that feeling in my stomach has started again, like that bad intuition. And I just remember her putting this on and I'm thinking, why would you go on the Kentucky tour if you were married? But I hope they're having a great time. And why is she putting a Band-Aid on her wedding ring? Because if anything happens, Band-Aid's going to come off in water. And her friend said to her, why are you putting a Band-Aid on your wedding ring? And I'm thinking exactly the same thing. Why are you doing that? And the girl standing next to me said, if anything happens, I just want people to remember that I was married. And I stood there and I thought, does she have that same feeling that I have too? And you know what? Her body has never, ever been found. Mm. She's at the bottom of the lake somewhere. Mm. And I always remember that moment. Mm. Wow. And I wonder still to this day, did she have that feeling that I had too? Mm. So I got on the bus and I just ignored it. I ignored this intuition. I ignored this sense that I had in my stomach. I thought of butterflies or I'm car sick or, you know, I'm tired or whatever. So we get up to the mountain and it's just like amazing, beautiful, crisp and clean. And it's like the Garden of Eden. It was magical. It was so green. Mm. And the smell of the freshness of the earth and the mm. leaves, it's just I'm very smell sensitive, obviously, because it really sticks with me. And we got out of them, out of our little mini bus, and people. One of the other groups had already started. I was in the second group. There was four groups that went up that day on the one sort of group tour that went that time that separated us into four. And our guide said to us, "We're not 100 sure whether or not we should go in today, but don't worry. There are exit points all along the way out. If we get in trouble, we can easily get out." And so. You know, we trusted them and they didn't know what was going to happen. And so we started on the canyoning adventure and the water was magical. It was crystal clear and beautiful, but it started to spit with rain and I could hear thunder in the distance. I just didn't realise that where the thunder was was at the top of the mountain. This is over 3,000, I think it's 3,500 and something metres it's very big and um I I just didn't understand that and as a girl from the country I understood weather patterns really well my hair was frizzy as anything so I've got quite curly hair <laughs> and so and so when it's gonna rain my hair goes like a golden poodle it's like poof <laughs> and I had poof hair under my helmet and I was like it is so going to rain by the time we got halfway down the canyon we were in a very narrow ravine and the water had gone from this beautiful crystal clear water of moments before to a murky muddy brown and had risen very, very quickly between my ankle and my knee. And I said to my girlfriend, why is the water rising? And she said, I don't know. I was the last person to ever speak to her. And where we were in the canyon was very narrow 
and there was no escape. And our guide said to us, we need to move really quickly. And so I took that next jump. And I'm normally one of those really tentative sort of people to get into the water. I'm like a penguin. I go in and out and in and out. And it takes me forever to get into the pool to actually go for a swim. I've been sitting there for an hour before I decide to go for a swim. Let's go for a swim an hour later. But this time, I just took that jump. And oh, you actually pushed, you pushed other by, by, you push past other people in order to get to, to it. My and intuition intu- took over. Exactly. It was, it was very surreal. And I think about that moment and it has never changed when I've written in my journals over the years, every time I always write the story on the date of the anniversary, which is actually next week. And it never has changed, which is very interesting as well in itself. And so I took that jump. I crossed my arms and I just leapt. Something inside of me overtook whatever I needed to do. And when I got into the water, it was a very dangerous jump as well. It was like a four-metre jump and if you didn't get into the metre-squared water hole, you'd break your leg. So you had to really, you know, pinpoint that pin drop. And the sound of the water was, it was so loud and so deafening and, and violent and I came up and because of my life vest, but I wouldn't have been able to come up had I not had a life vest on. And there was a guide waiting for me in the waterhole and he reached his hand out for me and our hands slipped past each other as I was pulled under the rapids. And it was in that moment that a four-metre wall of water came down, crushing all of my friends and swept me away. And in that moment I heard my dad's voice And he said, in my mind, if ever you get caught in floodwaters, just relax and stay calm. And I did. He also said, he would say it to us all the time on the farm because we had so many floods on our farm. And he said, water is stronger than us all. You can never, ever fight it. Just relax. Just stay calm. He's the most patient, most calm person you'll ever meet in your entire life. And he's like a Zen. He's not a Zen person, but he is very Zen. And I did that. I just totally, I surrendered my body. I let go. I didn't think of anything. All I focused on was trying to get air when I could. And I had my arms and legs going everywhere and whacking into all sorts of things. And I kept getting up for snippets of air when I could. And eventually I was pushed up into a boulder by a giant log. And that was the first time I could actually see what I was amongst. And I looked to my right and I saw my friend's bodies floating over the rapids. And I knew instantly that they were no longer with us. I'd done surf lifesaving as a kid and I'd taught a lot of kids water safety at school and I knew, I knew that they were gone. And then I looked to my left and I saw this beautiful bank of green beauty and the moss and the leaves, but it was just too far away and I knew that I could never, ever make it. And I had to make a very important decision at that point to either climb up onto the boulder that was behind me, which was almost sort of at my head. I was looking back up towards where the water was coming and the water was lapping at my chin and there was whole boulders moving and giant big logs, like whole trees were coming down. And the canyon that was, you know, very narrow had now become 20 metres wide. And my life played out to me in a series of snapshots in that moment of me as a child in primary school getting terribly bullied. I was so badly bullied as a little girl. Kids pinning me down, measuring parts of my body because I thought I was different or I looked different. I had a big nose, big arms, long fingers. 
I saw that moment of me in the playground with all those kids holding me down. I saw me as a teenager in high school feeling like I didn't fit into the cool group. I didn't quite belong wherever I didn't belong and I just couldn't find the right bit of me. And then I saw me in that terrible relationship where I'd been treated so badly and I didn't deserve it. And then I saw me on the mountain holding that snow and I knew that that was who I was, that that was what I had been searching for. And this felt like a very long period of time, but it was actually only a matter of seconds. And I didn't ever want to die having died being that other person because that wasn't who I was. I wanted to die being the person on the snow if I was going to die. So I wiggled free and I let go because I thought if I climb up onto that boulder, another boulder could potentially come down because I could see whole boulders moving and I thought I'm going to get crushed. Or I could go with my friends who accept me and love me for me, the real me, the me on the mountain. And so I chose that and I wiggled and I was swept away again. And I kept coming up for air as often as I could. I actually went over three waterfalls, but um, I didn't find that out until after I'd published the book because I talk about one particular mm. waterfall, which mm. I'm coming up to, but I'd already been over two. And so, um, but because I was underwater, I didn't, mm. I didn't, realize that and um there came a point when I thought this is it I I had no air left I mean when your lungs get squeezed they get squeezed and I really I needed to take another breath and I thought if I take another breath it's going to be full of water and so I prayed in that moment and I prayed to God and I prayed to my aunt that had died when I was younger and I said please dear God please, Arnie, die, don't let me die, because if I die, mum won't cope. And I always love it, like, I'm actually about to die, really and truly am about to die, and yet I'm still thinking about pleasing my parents and pleasing everyone else. And I love my mum. I speak to her two or three times a day. I am so close to her, and I have loved her all of my life and my father, my whole family, and I still am as close to them as ever. And I really don't think that she would have coped at all. But I think it says a lot about my own personality in that moment and what the, those expectations and all of those things that I'd been going through, that I was still going through that in the water, in the canyon. And I don't know how, but either it was a miracle from God, an angel, or the force of a giant wave, I sporadically burst up out of the water and my whole torso was up out of the water and I could see what I was about to go over, which was this absolutely giant waterfall. And I swore in that moment because I thought, I don't know if I'm going to make that going over this waterfall. Like, oh, oh my God. And so I swore out loud and, and then I fell into the water and then I went over the waterfall. It's a kind of like a feeling of free fall flight. There's actually a photo of that waterfall on my website that someone took and I found. and. Um, when I came up for air again, I was in this tiny little alcove and it was crystal clear and there were no rapids and the water was dark and I tried to move but I was exhausted. I actually didn't know you could ever be that exhausted. My legs wouldn't work and I used my arms to breaststroke to the edge and I tried to climb out and I kept holding onto the grass but it was so wet 
and my fingers kept slipping through the grass. That was probably the first time I actually felt scared because I thought if that water comes in here and takes me away, I am done for because I cannot do that again. And a pair of feet arrived at my eyes and he tried to grab onto my life vest, but I had a massive branch stuck through my arms of my life vest. And so I wiggled back into the water and sort of yanked it out and then yelled out go and he pulled me up onto the bank and my legs were still in the water and when I looked up it was one of my friends that had also survived but I was exhausted and I had mud everywhere I had mud in my eyelashes inside my eyes I was blowing out mud for months and a guide or I didn't know who it was at the time but it was a guide came up from out of nowhere and said come with me And there were four survivors that ended up in that little alcove. And we followed him. I got up like a sergeant major and ordered everyone around. I was like adrenaline fully kicked in. (laughs) I was bossing everyone about and telling them, come on, you have got to go. We're going to get to higher ground. And survival, I just knew that the water would keep rising and that I needed to get to higher ground. And so we climbed up the side of the mountain, which was like a mudslide now and held onto trees and ropes and anything we could find to try and yank ourselves up. And when we got up to the road, the person that had guided us up there looked at me and he said, you're the one that I couldn't hang on to. And he embraced me and couldn't stop crying and it was the guide that had tried to hold my hand. And we made our way back down the road to what was the scene of a rescue attempt, but I knew that they were already too late. For those of you out there who have never seen a lahar or a, 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 a flash flood like that, the power of the water is so immense that it shifts cars, buses, boulders, trees the size of two, three men. Uh, they will just be broken off and washed down. And in that washing machine, of rocks and stones and all kind of debris. If you're in there, your chance of survival are very, very, very slim. That's, I think, fair to say. So the sheer fact that you had survived this far was a fluke of, of whatever it was. You, if you're religious, you could say that some, some angel was I was pushing you ahead of the of the real maelstrom that was behind you, but I mean it was not not that you got off scot free. Um, you make it sound as if you're just a little bit exhausted there, but that's not really the whole story, is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I wasn't just a little bit exhausted. No, I've never been that exhausted since. To be fair. Um, no, so I had um, my injuries included a broken leg. My tibia was split in half from my ankle to my knee. I had a dislocated jaw, which has caused me trouble ever since. I had four broken ribs from when the um, when the tree slammed me into the um, boulder. Um, my pancreas got damaged, and so I'm on an insulin pump. Um, it doesn't work anymore. It's broken. I had soft tissue damage to both of my legs, which still causes me trouble most days. I have constant aching legs. Um, I have all sorts of um, vascular issues going on with all of that. 
I um, had post-traumatic stress disorder and survivor's guilt for many, many years. Yeah. I also had, I often don't talk about this, but I also um, nearly bled out too. <laughs> I forgot to put that in the book. As Just a small do. other thing. Um, so I had this massive cut. I've got a huge big scar across my wrist. So, um, and it's actually got bits of Switzerland still in it, which I, <laughs> I never dug it out properly. It's, yeah. It was like fully sliced across my hand. Talking about mementos and, and souvenirs, come on. A Toblerone or a hat or a clock. Mutt no, in your wrist, really? Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's in my wrist forever. Honestly. Yeah. I probably didn't nearly bled out. That might be an exaggeration, but I definitely lost a lot of blood. And um, because it's, you know, it's where people try and commit suicide right across there. So um, I was very, very lucky um, in terms of that. But unfortunately, um, because of everything that had happened, so many people died that day. 21 people died that day. Five of those people were my friends. And... Um, the hospital didn't know how to cope. No one knew how to cope with anything. There were people from all over the world. There were New Zealanders, South Africans, English, Swiss that died. Three guides died. One of the girls that was a guide that died, she actually jumped in three times. On the third time, she didn't make it back out. And where we were was about two suburbs away from where the main lake is and the flash flood went through those two towns and down into the lake and that's when they realised there was a problem and they alerted the authorities. And there's actually visual footage of the floodwaters going into the beautiful icy blue lake of Lake Brienz Mm. at Interlaken and you can see the debris and the bodies and the water coming out into the lake. Yeah. And it's hard. You think then you guys were scooped up and were brought into the hospital. And initially I thought, what the hell? Being a doctor, being an anesthetist, specializing in trauma, being part of trauma response teams. When you, when I read your story, I thought, what the heck? Because there was nothing like the well-lit areas where people come in, uh, get examined, get stripped down, uh, needles being put in, resuscitation happening, teams no. working on each. You guys were put in little, little, little wheelies, wheelchairs, put in a room there. And you think, what the hell? I thought, yeah, it, they didn't even do it. They didn't even do it. They didn't even check us out. They just said, yeah. where, where are you sore? Oh, I'm a bit sore here and yeah. my leg's a bit sore. Yeah. But how can you know what to tell them what's sore no, no, when you're no. in all that shock? I mean, of, of course, and it's all the adrenaline. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is so, so, so unbelievable for me as a doctor, as an anaesthetist. And mm. there are times when, when I've been in scenarios where we got overwhelmed. So being overwhelmed... Nowadays, we expect that. And there are training scenarios where you learn that. And we go on to courses where you deal with major incidents, where Mm. you simulate that there is a a bomb explosion somewhere in a stadium, and you have to deal with that. And so it's not 
not that these things are not known, but in all fairness, that was 1999. Mm. That was maybe not so commonly known then. The no, advanced trauma, the advanced trauma life support system was only established in the in the late 70s uh, and so that is the, the the way how doctors learn to deal with individual trauma but then the major incident and medical management and support systems that only was sort of becoming more widely known around about that time so yeah. i can imagine this was a beautiful holiday spot there was you know someone would from now and then break their ankle well, okay so what um but this was this was a major major incident which would have overwhelmed any hospital in melbourne or in adelaide etc there's suddenly to get a flood of people coming in now they were uh, they were 21 confirmed deaths how and they were from what i got it from your book they were about a handful maybe six seven people who there were six actually people survived. who would take six yeah. people taken to hospital right that were um that were washed away so yeah. two of those six climbed up onto boulders and waited to be rescued and then right. there were other so the first in the first um group of people that were yeah. in front of us they all survived right one uh, and then the group behind, which was my group, three of us survived and we were all washed away. Uh, one of those girls, she climbed up onto a rock and um, much further back than where I washed up. So there was only two of us who survived in my group that got washed up into the little spot that I got washed up in. Um, and then there was a, a man, a, a young man in the group behind me, in the group, third group, and he survived. He got washed up into the little spot that I got washed up in. Right. Um, and all of his group passed away. They all perished that day. And then the group behind, um, they all survived, but they all, um, similar to the first group, they climbed up onto boulders and rocks. And the first group climbed up, actually were able to get out and they climbed yeah. up and they were all pushing each other and pulling each other up as the water started to change. But, um, and it was very steep as well, like where they were, it was very steep and, and tricky. Um, they often laugh about it, how they were all shoving each other in the butt. <laughs> get them out. Um, and then, and so, and the third, the, the last group, they, um, yeah, they all survived, but they all, you know, had, we all had PTSD and survivor's mm -hmm. guilt and, sure. you know, there was so much around all of that. So, um, and trauma is trauma is trauma. There's no hierarchy of trauma. It doesn't, exactly. you know, you don't have to have gone through a flash flood to have, have trauma in your life. You might have had a loved one who's had cancer or you might have had a teacher be nasty to you in grade two at school and you never recovered from it. Or It doesn't matter. There is no, there is no hierarchy. What, what happens to one person doesn't make it better for, or worse than another person. doesn't mean it's more Absolutely. or less. Absolutely. So we just, and we're all so individual and so different and how we recover from all of those things is so different as well. So um, how I then recovered, which I'm excited to share with you today, I use lots of different tools and lots of strategies and lots of support networks, which I originally didn't have, to really help me uncover and unlock a lot of those things. And, you know, I still, I still have to get help still now sometimes because you... Even though I know I have a purpose and I have meaning in my life, very much so, and I feel very fulfilled in my life, you just still get times, you get setbacks where you think, I was pretty close. Why did I survive? Because I was 
very, very close. And when I got on a plane to come back home, you know, there was the police investigation. We weren't allowed to leave the chalet. It was all very, very traumatic. And I had no pain relief whatsoever. So that was, and I was walking around and I, could, I couldn't even breathe because my ribs weren't just fractured. They were snapped off and floating around in my chest. And so it was, that was incredibly painful. And I don't know how many people have had broken ribs, but they really, really hurt because they help you breathe with your intercostals. And so when you can't breathe, you have to breathe all the time. So, um, and there's no rest for them. So I found that really hard. And but guys out there, let's let's just be quite clear. Tiffany seems to have a, a, a tendency to understate things. Her legs by that time were twice the size. Her foot was swollen to nth degree because that's what happens when you have got a broken bone um, that you have got bleeding from the bone. So there would have been a liter of blood sitting in the tissues around your broken tibia there. No surprise that everything was stretched buggery and yeah. that you're still... Blown now. up. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> you would have been a Michelin man because everything, everything, or Michelin woman, from my apologies, um, you would have been rather full of inflammation, but to a degree that that is that needs virtually hospital support, virtually... Uh, appropriate care uh leave alone the the, the trauma debriefing and and help that you, that your mind needs no i'm talking that purely about your body i mean it took you what three days until finally someone gave you a painkiller you yeah. think what the hell you know it's just <laughs> i'm embarrassed for my for my 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 ill care for my 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 brethren in in coats but I guess it is, there would have been so much more going on, so much more in the sense of um, the police would have been there, uh, people were running around left, right and centre, suddenly yeah. the government is involved, suddenly everything is topsy-turvy. It was chaos. Yeah, it was exactly. chaos. So these, yeah. the, the doctors and the nurses wouldn't have known where to start. Uh, they no. wouldn't have had the system that we nowadays have and know how to go about triaging patients and then yeah. doing a primary survey, secondary survey, where we go over you with a fine tooth comb. And then the next day we do a tertiary survey and again go over you with a fine tooth comb because we know we have missed things because we got excited about the bone sticking out there and, yeah. and the bleeding from there and you miss something and the patient tells me no 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 it's all fine it's all my chest and then meanwhile that down there the foot hangs off and but yeah. the patient doesn't know because everything he focuses here we focus there and yeah. then the next day we finally do it so that is what would happen to you nowadays in virtually in, in most of the systems where I have worked in, there are very clear structured approaches to individual patients in trauma, mm. as well as in uh, in to a scenario where we get overwhelmed. So it it sounds like a bloody Stephen King horror story when I read your book, and I the only thing I can say is I can a little bit understand what has occurred, although it's hard for me to accept it. 
Um, and I, uh, please, those of you out there, if you live more or less in, in, in a civilized world where there is no civil war, where there is no uh, complete overwhelming of a, of a healthcare system, you would probably nowadays expect a rather different care. So if you read mm -hmm. Tiff's book, um, yeah, it's no longer like that. Uh, mm. I, I must Thank say goodness. that. Yeah, well, exactly. exactly <laughs> That's very that. pleasing, isn't it? <laughs> oh, please, yeah. honestly. And as I've yeah. been teaching, I've been teaching these courses. So for me to 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 read this book is is oh heartbreaking. Mm. So and getting on that plane was so like to come home, and I knew that I knew I had to come home. How could I? I was lucky I had a home to come to and loving parents and they were desperate to get over there, but I was so angry. I was angry. I was in pain. I I just couldn't face anything and I thought, well, we're going to end up, you know, they'll be coming over and I'll be going home and we'll miss each other and it's not worth it and I'll just make my way home. And, I, you know, when you get on a plane and the air from the terminal hits and the air from the plane hits and then you get this buzz from the air. It's like a three-way air pocket just mm. as you walk back to get onto that plane. Mm. And I remember standing in there and feeling the hot from being, I was in Heathrow and the cool and then the stale air coming and I had no shoes on. I had the only baggy pants that were now tight. I was in absolute agony the floor was scratchy. I was black and blue. I looked like something out of one of those, you know, NCIS type murder victims that's been beaten to death and they show photos to the police and they're like, oh, this person, this poor woman's found this body and she's, you know, unrecognisable. I looked like a walking person like that. But I hid it all under all of my clothes because I didn't want anybody to see because, well, I'm alive. So what have I got to complain about? Why am I complaining? I'm alive. Like, I could be dead. I should be dead. But in that moment with those three airways, I actually thought it's the only time in my life that I genuinely have wanted to die. I never understood people that could possibly be in such a low place that they would have suicidal thoughts. And in that moment of being in so much pain and knowing that my life was forever changed and that none of my friends would ever see the light of day again, feeling that intense grief, knowing that I couldn't help them when I saw them. And that's been one of the hardest things to deal with is that I couldn't help them. It still makes me almost tear up because I couldn't help them. And to live with that forever is heartbreaking. And so now I have a much, I have so much more compassion for people who are who have a lot of mental health things, and I understand all of those reasons of why I thought that at that point. But that was definitely one of the lowest, if not the lowest, moment when I just I didn't want to go home. I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be anywhere. I actually wished that I had died. Why did you not take me to, take me to, and. When I got home, because there was so much media, the media was very intense, um, we were taken through secret back alleyways and, and into this special room and seeing my parents again, I was still angry. I didn't want to partake in anything that was going on and, you know, my mum just always says, I just remember your feet, like your feet were just unrecognisable. They didn't even look like human feet. And it took me a long time to actually get out of bed 
because I was sore and I didn't want to face anything and I was having nightmares and flashbacks and all of that PTSD stuff and the trauma side of it and it was nasty and horrible. And um, my mum got really scared and I talk about this in in the book but she rang a girl. If ever I got up out of bed, I'd only talk about one person and that person's name was Cassandra, the girl on the bus from Tuscany. And my mum rang her and said, you know, I don't know you but I need your help and I think you're the only person that can help me and help my daughter. Will you please come and visit us? And I hadn't cried at all since the accident had happened and when she got off that plane three hours later after that phone call, I sobbed on her shoulder. Was Cassandra Kiwi or was she an Aussie? She's from Australia. Yeah, Australia. she actually lives ten minutes away from me now. Like <laughs> <laughs> we moved, oh, we moved to be near each other. Um, oh, and so, yeah, and so um, you know, like I'm second mum to her kids, and she's second mum to my kids, and we've been each other's bridesmaids, and you know, we're in each other's pockets. She's a sister I never had, and she's my family. Her family's my family. Her mum's my mum. You know, her brother. We travelled with her brother last year. It was amazing. So, um, we're it's family. She's my family, and. I saw her and having that person, and I did, an, I did a podcast the other week with um, Victorian Ambulance and I really wanted to embrace their opportunities of connection with their co-workers because when you go through a really traumatic experience and if there's someone else that hasn't, has been in a similar or around or ha- has experienced the same thing as you, but not even the same thing because you're always experiencing things differently, but if they were there at the time or they've done a similar thing, and I'm sure that you've had the same experience in your steps towards recovery, there's something in that, knowing that you have that other person who understands it and gets it and is just going to accept that, accept that you've made the mistakes and accept the hard days and accept the good days and lift you up and and help you and celebrate with you and hold you. And those were the biggest steps towards my recovery was having that support. I also had another very dear friend, which, um, spoiler alert, is in the next book. And we've been friends since we were four. And I had all these people calling home and I just wouldn't speak to anyone. I don't don't want anyone to come in and I just couldn't face it. How could they understand? How could anyone understand? I hadn't even told my parents really all what had happened. And I didn't tell anyone what had happened. How could I? I was alive. How could I? That's that survivor's guilt coming, constantly coming up. And so this friend of mine came over. Like I said, you know, we first time we drank together, first time we, you know, we did all these first together from when we were really little. And she came over, she pulled the covers back and she said, get up. And I said, no. (laughs) And she pulled the covers back again and she said, get up now. And I was like, no, go away and put a pillow over my head. And she said, you stink. Go for God's sake, have a shower. You stink. And I was like, I don't care, go away. (laughs) And she's like, goes into my cupboard, pulls out all my clothes, get up and have a shower, for God's sake, wash your hair, brush your teeth, and come back in here. (laughs) So I went off and had a shower and came back, washed my hair, brushed my teeth. God knows how long I'd been lying in that bed. She changed all my sheets. She pulled out my clothes. Get dressed. No, I want to get dressed. Get me some pyjamas. You're not getting into pyjamas? Get dressed. 
Excellent. Puts me in my clothes. Come on, I'm taking you out. I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to see anyone. She's like, I don't care. Get in the car. She drags me into the car. Get in the car. And she takes me into town and she takes me to the local pub and we sit there and she pours me a pint of beer. I'm diabetic as well, right, by now. Like, it, no, it's all bad. And no one knows yet. I'm still undiagnosed and I'm crazy because my highs and lows are going crazy. And so, you know, I'd not eaten anything one morning when I, when I finally had the uh, my BGL test, you know, the, just the stick one at the doctor's mm. and I think I was at like 26 or something and I've not eaten all day. And she's like, have you had a Coke or something? I'm like, no, nothing. I haven't eaten anything today yet. And she's like, but it's 11 o'clock. Oh, I wasn't really hungry. She's like, uh, we're going to send you for bloods right now. And then I passed out in the pathology and then I found out the next day that I needed to go to hospital urgently and it was very unfortunate. But um, anyway, so she brings me this pint of beer and I'm from a small town, remember, we talked about that before, like it was a small town still, not so much today, but it was back then. And every single person looked at me, every person looked at me. Why? It was like something off a movie, like (laughs) watching me sit down. You know, I can't, I can barely walk. I sit down and my girlfriend turns around to everyone, she's alive, leave her alone for God's sake. Excellent. <laughs> and so we sit there and I'm like, you've got to get me out of here. And she's like, I've got you a job. And I was like, a job? She's like, you've got to get up. You've got to get out. You've got to get a job. I'm like, I can't get a job. And she's like, I've got you a job. Oh. Come on, we're going shopping. We go shopping. We've got to get your clothes for your interview because I've got you a job. That job, I got that job and I met my husband, who is now my husband. And so that is the beginning of my recovery was having that support. And I finally realised that I needed extra help besides the girlfriends and the family. And I <laughs> went no for my shit, GP. Sherlock. Ollie. Yeah, I was full mess. <laughs> I was a mess and I was drinking again. And I was, I rang my dad one night from in Sydney. Like we live three hours away from Sydney and I'm in the city Dad, can you come and get me? It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I was drunk as a skunk. He's like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, no. He said, go away and hung up on me. (laughs) (laughs) So then I rang my elderly grandmother. (laughs) Man, I'm coming to your house. Oh, I didn't turn up to her house. I caught a taxi, three hours, a $500 taxi to get me home and my poor elderly grandmother was staying up all night waiting for me to come and knock on the door to say I'm coming because she lived in the city oh my god anyway it might have even been more than $500 but it was a long time ago so you know I made lots of mistakes but I realized (laughs) that I actually had a significant mental health problem and I went back to see my GP that had discovered I had diabetes and I got kicked out of a pub because I punched a girl and what is the time frame that we're talking now um so tw- uh, 12 months later, I realised, so the six months after, so about three or four months afterwards is when I got um, the job with mm. the girlfriend. Like it was a long, it was quite a few months before I ventured outside of the house. Mm. Um, and then I got diagnosed with the diabetes in December. It was actually on the 23rd of December, just before Christmas. And um, because I just somehow managed to keep going. I don't know how I'd lost all this weight and I constantly was craving apricot nectar of all things to eat and drink when you're diabetic, apricot, bloody apricot nectar. 
It's a wonder I didn't drop dead there and then anyway. So <laughs> I was really not in a good way. And I, yeah, at about, about the 12-month mark, I realised that things were really significantly bad. I couldn't function at work anymore. I knew that my behaviour was out of control. I'd moved out of home again and I went back to my hometown and I saw my GP that I'd seen after the accident that had helped me with all of my injuries. And she said, I want you to go and see the post-traumatic stress disorder clinic at Westmead Hospital in Sydney. And I made an appointment to see them. And the first time I went there, I, oh, I'm a survivor from the Swiss Canyoning disaster. And yeah, because it was such huge news and it was still in the news. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and this happened and that happened. Da, 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 and then I'm done. And they're like, okay, right. <laughs> We've got some work to do here. Exactly. Right. Next. Yeah. Okay. We'd really like you to sign up for our program. Okay, great. What do I do? Sign here. Okay, great. Right. Now next week you're going to come in and you're going to tell us the story again. I said, okay, no problem. And they're like, but we want you to do it a bit differently. And I was like, okay, we want you to come in. You're going to sit in this big chair. It's really comfortable and you can take as long as you like. Oh, it'll be over in five minutes. This has been over in five minutes. And I said, and you're going to tell us how you felt at every step of the way. And I was like, what? And you're going to tell us in descriptive language what happened and then you're going to stop and then you're going to tell us how you feel. I just looked at them. What? No. No. No, that's not happening. Yes, it is. And you you have to close your eyes when you do it. I could not concentrate. I don't think I slept that whole week waiting for that appointment. I was so anxious and I had this new boyfriend who was dreamy as hell, who's my husband, who's still dreamy as hell. And <laughs> and he he was amazing. He said to me, because it was a fair way away from where I was living, I was living in the eastern suburbs, and so he said, I don't want you driving out there. I don't think it's a really good idea. You know, you've been a little bit touch and go this week. And... I think it might be a really good idea if I'll t- we'll go out on the train. He didn't have a car. So he said, I'll take you on the train and I'll just wait for you. And then I'll take you home. Just make sure you're okay. I don't, if you're happy for me to come, I'd really love to, to be there for you. And I was like, oh, wow. God, you're so bloody protective and all right, you can come. <laughs> and, and, you know, I hadn't been dating that long, maybe three months or something. You know, it was very new, very, very new. And um, he waited for three hours in a cafe while I went through that hell appointment. But that appointment, sitting there and telling someone what really happened, because I still had not told a soul about the relationship beforehand. I'd not told anybody about what, how I saw everyone die. I'd not told them how I felt about how I couldn't help them. I'd not told them about the waterfalls not told them about the bodies banging into me I've not told anybody anything and that was liberating and heart-wrenching and necessary and so I always say to people that you need to get the right help and they were the right help because I dealt with trauma and you can go and see a grief counsellor but that's no good if you need help with a cancer diagnosis and you wouldn't go and see someone for your teeth at a dentist if you had a broken bone and you needed it to get reset. So don't go and see someone who doesn't specialise in the area where you need help. And it's okay to need help. There's nothing wrong 
there's nothing not brave. You're brave in asking for the help and going through the program because without that, I don't know where I'd be. I may not even be alive if I didn't do that. And I was with them for many, many months and I use a lot of their tools still to this day in helping me deal with all sorts of stuff. And it is an ongoing journey. These yeah. are these are things that that come in layers. <laughs> you have peeled away the layers from the bad behavior to finally come to that the mountaintop and the, the snow, and you found mm. the first little glimpse of that of that new you. And then again, chaos, chaos, chaos. And then you started again peeling away yeah. the negative layers and and you started to become the new you through mm. this journey through this transformation from from literally broken not mm. just up there broken but literally broken um, yeah. to slowly finding finding the new you yeah i mean this would have been that is the real story that is the real the real heroin journey that, that I want to read about in due course. <laughs> I know you're writing your book and you bloody well now get on with it, okay? None, none <laughs> more of that pushing around here. I want that book, okay? Yeah, because yeah. You, this would have been the really hard, the hard steps. How do you deal yeah. with survivor guilt? How do you deal yeah. with that? How do you... How do you, what do you do when you wake up three o'clock in the morning? Kabing! And it yeah. is there. The vision is there. And you, you're I, waking up clammy and sweaty because you have oh. just dreamt it. You have yeah. just, you, need, you get up, put a new T-shirt on, and you dread to go back to bed because you know you keep continuing to dream. That was at least with there. me. So it's, yeah. it's that... Argh. What it's do you still there do? over and over and over and over and over and over. It doesn't ever, ever stop. I think one of the biggest tools, I've got lots of tools up my sleeve. I did a lot of art therapy, which has been a blessing to me because I'm super creative and have sold a lot of my artwork in my life and things. So that's nice. something up my alley anyway. Um, and I've um, journaled a lot and I've got my new book, um, Discover Your Brave, A Guided Journal to Unlocking Your Best and Bravest Self coming out in next month. And um, so I still do a lot of journaling and I a lot of living your truth. But I was really thinking about this recently, knowing that tonight was happening. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things that's helped in my recovery and also while I've been writing the book, I've been thinking about this too, but it is my faith. And I never thought I'd say that because I'm not a religious person by any stretch of the imagination. I'm, even though I prayed and I do talk a lot about God in the book, I grew up in a non-religious family. We never went to church. I've actually married into a religious family. They're all ministers and it's hilarious. But um, I, I have an incredible strong faith in the universe and I think that comes from that sixth sense intuition and I trust in it so strongly over anything else. I trust in that. I trust in some people call it source energy. Some people call it their intuition or their spirit guide. But it's an, it's, a, it's like a knowing within yourself. Mm -hmm. And I had to write the book because there was a knowing within me 
that I had to do it. And I started writing the book when I first came back, but it was so raw and so hard and I just closed that down and no way I'm not opening that can of worms. And then an incident happened in my life where I was quite distressed and I was talking to a counsellor about this situation that I was going through and she's very sort of psychic, intuitive sort of person and, and, and she said, I can see in your future that there's a box and I was like a box and she said and then you're on stage and you're talking and I was like I'm not going back on stage you know that I can't sing properly anymore my jaw's cactus like it's not happening and then I went oh my god I know what's in that box and she said what's in the box I can't see what's in the box and I was like it wasn't it was like a it was not not like a psychic reading it was just this intuitive moment and I said it's my book and she was like oh and it is my book and my book's changed my world I help I've helped so many people across the globe I have my podcast now when we are brave I share which you're going to be on which is going to be amazing um and I share you know so many stories about being brave being brilliantly brave listening to your intuition listening to who you genuinely are because when you do listen to that intuition and you believe in yourself the magic comes your way and everything just flows and falls into place and the universe has got everything lined up for you. And so I think that's a huge part of my own form of faith. And I don't think you need to believe in what I believe, but I think you need to believe in something, whatever that is, whatever that looks like for you. And I'm not judgmental or care or, you know, whatever works for you works for you. And if it helps you live your best life, if it helps you live bravely and face your fears and move through your fears, then that is the key to finding meaning in your life, finding purpose, finding happiness, and that is what gives us brilliantly brave lives. Beautiful. I could not say it in any better way. It is, and you have lifted, you have, you have done the, the full circle, you've done, you have, you've changed from this little, wounded wombat to the lioness <laughs> there and yeah. that is and it's beautiful and then once you reach that point it's nearly compelling that you share that that you yeah. go out there and actually share the joy and the fulfillment and the the power that you feel within that that that, that positive globe of energy that needs to come out and yeah. it is it is beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and ah, uh, and we need keep we need to keep telling these stories because they need to be heard because there are so many people who are the wombat in the in the yeah. bright lights. Of the, yeah, no, and yeah. every young woman out there is essentially the same. Every young man is the same. We are hurt. We are, and it's actually only getting worse nowadays with social media and, and bullying in, in many mm. other forms than, than just being held down on the playground. Mm. Um, it, is, it is so important that we tell our stories and that we tell people yeah. the ways that we have succeeded in getting out of the darkness and towards that light. And often enough, we, we made that light ourselves. We switched on the light. And 
moved towards and made that light and blew oxygen into the flame and it got larger and larger. And yeah. that, that these are the skills that you are learning. These are the, these are the, the countless discussions that you're having with counselors, life coaches, psychiatrists, uh, your GP, the whole actually network of people that is around you. But you just yeah. don't know it when you're in the deepest misery. But mm. it, you need that friend who who <laughs> pulls pulls the, the, pulls the covers, the, the covers off you. That's how much you So that that's called an in, in intervention. Okay, yeah. so, <laughs> you had someone who loves you. That's cool. Yeah, so that's great. And I'm sure your mom uh, was not far away from doing that as well. But it's always harder for parents to do that. because I then, think they were too scared that I would then just put the wall up even more to them. Exactly. Exactly. That's yeah. that's exactly what I would dread with my boys. No two ways around it. So mm -hmm. it was good that someone else came in there. But yeah. uh, maybe maybe our discussions here can be that someone else. Maybe someone is stumbling across our words here, either in, in on the video or as in, in the podcast, and actually think, bloody hell, if these two numbnuts can sort themselves out, then then there's still a good chance for me, you know? I mean, look at that's us. It. Come on. Come on. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and there's something else, too, that I want to just mention on that topic is that there's always someone that wants to listen to you, even though when you think that there is not, there's always someone at the end of a mm. phone line like mm -hmm. Lifeline or wherever, yeah. whatever country you're in, there is yeah. always a helpline yes. available. Yes, so whenever you need help, please, please make that phone call because it might just be the call that turns your life around. Yes, yes. And it might be incredibly shameful and embarrassing and you think, oh, my God, there's no way that I can expose myself like that. Mm. Rest assured. We have only scratched the surface with Tiff yeah. and me. We, we we don't tell you the real gory stuff, okay? So we the, uh, we all have done some bad things, and we all have been in some very embarrassing and shameful places. What, regardless of what you're going through, if you were to come into a rehab place where there are 12 other guys around you and you start sharing stories you just think what what uh, is a uh, there is always someone who has done far worse things than <laughs> yeah. you so okay let's be very clear yeah <laughs> and probably half of the time i would put my hand up and say no, no. <laughs> what you done there nice nice try nice try let me tell, tell let me tell you a story <laughs> so please please yeah. this is this is there's nothing that you have done that cannot be changed or overcome. Yeah. And you making right now that choice to pick up that phone is mm. such a cool first step. And yeah. It, it, yeah, I agree, Tiff. Well done. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Well played. Cool. I think this is, this was such a, wonderful 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 interview i i'm blown away actually i'm it is i've i've read your book i therefore have haven't said the name of the book we need oh, to please, say the name please, of the book please. oh sorry i'm bad bad boy <laughs> we keep talking about my book my book yeah. i've just realized we've not said the name of it the book is called 
Brave Enough Now, an inspirational story of self-discovery, survival and hope. And it is available on Amazon and iBooks and it's soon to be just gone wide, which means it will be available on all online platforms, but it's also available in paperback. And drumroll, coming out as an audiobook, it has been uploaded and will be on Audible, which I have narrated. So if you've enjoyed listening to my voice this evening, people, um, <laughs> you can listen to it as an audiobook, which I am very, very thrilled to do that because I've put so much emotion into reading my own story. I'm crying, I'm laughing. It's quite yeah. funny. So um, it's it's yeah. me sharing my story with a friend. And if you're into audiobooks, then that will be available in the next 10 days or so. Woo! Yay! Oh, really pleased for you because that's exactly what what I would envisage. It is it is the same with me. I'm working on the audio version of my book, and my wife initially was saying, "No, no, no, no! You bloody German accent! No, 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 no! We get an American actor to read that." And I thought, "Hmm, that's my story." Hang on, this is, I don't care. I don't want to have an English voice or it's just, sorry, you have to deal with that bloody accent because it's my story. Your it's story. my lessons. And so it's beautiful. Oh, crikey. Yeah. Oh, it's exciting. Yeah. Well done, so you, really Tiff. Cool. Yeah, Tiff, thank well you. Done. <laughs> thank you for having me, Stefan. It's been, oh. it's been an epic interview. I hope that your <laughs> listeners have stuck through to the end, but I hope that they've enjoyed listening and that they've got something out of today. And exactly. Their life is exactly. brave. Yeah. Guys, look out for, look after yourself, but look out for those people around you that might need that little smile and that might need yeah. that little that little intervention. And that can be as much as you saying, hey, fancy having a coffee? Um, that might be all that someone who is really broken needs mm. to have this, this glimmer of hope. And you can be the merchant of hope. You guys can do that. Yeah. So go out there, make this a better world, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Dream on. Dream on.